Felti wrote, Isedo Biha. Welcome once again to Crown of Biha Short Stories and Poetry. I'm Terence O'Donnell, your Irish skillet, and I'm back again to read you more stories and poems from medium writers. This week, I have three stories and two poems for everyone. The first is the fifth chapter of the ongoing story from Beyond the Waterwall, a cute alien story, two poems that will make you think about life a little, a fictional dystopian future story that reminds me a little of my book, Fugitives in the New United States, and chapter 14 of the Sanctuary Story. So gather around and let me read to you for a bit as you relax under the crown of Biha, the tree of life. The first story I'm going to read to you is chapter 5 from Beyond the Water Wall, Ducks at the Beach by Don Woodby. Uh, he published this in The Fiction Writer's Den. Previously, Wren told Mars about the dictator Bogus and his right-hand Aegon. She also explained to him how they used to sell weapons and how he died at the hands of government soldiers. Mars decided to get her out first before trying to go back where he came from. Mars had spent the night on the couch, which, despite his presentation, turned out to be surprisingly cozy. While Rem prepared breakfast, more than once he had felt the urge to walk up to her and embrace her tightly from behind. Then something would snap in his head and pull him quickly away from it. As they ate, there was no conversation about an escape plan or returning to another world. Mars could always distance himself from a difficult situation to regain a perspective to face it at a later point. Wren had a queer countenance, though. She would glance to the side from time to time and stay silently as if not listening to him. So, I thought about everything for a long time last night before I could sleep, Mars said as he carried the dishes to the sink. We're going to need a big distraction to enable your escape. We each have a different goal, so we have to tackle this in two distinct ways. You need to escape the country. I need to get back to my world. How everything plays out is going to depend on how we can find out how I can go back. How do we even start? Wren asked, raking her fingers through her hair. we got to investigate the beach where I was found. We also need to come up with a way to yield a distraction so we can slip you through the border. So, the big distraction, what would it be, Wren asked. A riot, perhaps? If we can find a way to make it happen, the attention can't be fully on us. They will likely strengthen the border even more, she said with a frown. You're right, he sighed faintly. There was silence for a moment. Mars rested his chin on his fist. There is a better way. We can detonate explosives around the city and wait for them to mobilize. Then we can sneak you out. Wren sat in silence for some seconds, as if waiting for an idea to sink in. I'm not sure my weapon-building expertise would be enough to assemble them in the way you're describing. We would need remote detonators that can cover the whole city. But I'll see what I can do. We will need some raw material, though. Still have contact with the people from the two gangs? Yeah, we're still in business not that long ago. The words faded out as she looked down. I'm sure we can get it from him, as long as we give something in return. He shrugged. Do we even have any money? She bit her lips and looked to the side. Maybe we can make some extra. We get the material, build the bombs, and give them half the product. So how do you contact them? I don't, she said. We have a very distinct way of conducting our business. They spray a sign on a wall downtown before 10 p.m. That means they want to talk to us. We then meet them at a designated place the next night. 
but I haven't responded the last time, and we still don't know who ratted us out. We know it was someone from the Liberation Army, right? So we contact the Freedom Renegade guys instead. We can reverse things and spray the symbol. Maybe they will answer the call. It's a bit dangerous, but I can't see any other way. She shrugged. It may work. We do it today, then. First, we go to the beach and try to look around and see if we can get any clues. After that, right after sunset, we spray the coat on the wall. The sunshine's reflection on the white sand was blinding. A drop of sweat ran through Ren's forehead as, as they walked on the sideway. Half a dozen people were spread along the beach, frying under the sun. Despite the weather, the beach wasn't crowded. After strolling for some minutes, Ren stopped. She looked down and around as Mars stood still, gazing deep into the horizon. It was here where they found you. Mars looked around quietly. Two fishing boats sailed in the sea. One was very small and only had one man inside. The other one, relatively bigger, had three people on board. On the street, near the sand, stood a small store. Are they always here? Mars asked, pointing to the boats. Usually, yes, she said, squinting it against the sun. They will be back before sunset. I want to wait for it, see if they saw something. He then slithered toward the store. Do you know the people who work there? She shrugged. I've seen them. Want some duck? Mars asked, turning to Ren. She frowned. We can't just walk up to a store and blatantly start asking questions. The woman skinned and deboned the large bird. She skillfully flipped it inside out and chopped it into small pieces, only slowing down to adjust the hairnet that insistently moved to the side of her head, letting a small strand of hair fly away. The man looked toward the sea, seemingly unaware of his surroundings. So, do you work every day here? Mars asked, startling him away from whatever he was daydreaming about. Except on Sundays, yes. He glanced back, checking on his partner. The duck was still being fried. Two dark plastic containers filled with rice and vegetables rested on the table inside. I heard that last week someone was lying, lying unconscious on the shore, Mars said, trying to maintain a steady voice. Crazy story, huh? Yeah, it's not every day you see something like that, he answered, looking Mars straight in the eyes. The fisherman, he was alone. He brought someone to the shore, left him there, and went back to the sea. I didn't want to meddle, you know, it's not safe. But some minutes after the fisherman left, some people arrived and put him inside a car. Mars pointed toward the sea. That one out, that one there? The small one, yes, he answered. Not sure if the same guy, definitely the same ship. The lady stuffed the duck pieces inside the containers and placed them on the counter. Let's eat and wait till sunset, he said, looking at Wren. When they come back, we'll strike up a conversation. He filled the fork with food and stopped before bringing it inside his mouth. I hope you like duck as much as my wife back home. So we'll have chapter six next week. My next story is an alien story. It's entitled, We Have an Alien for You. Todd was still hoping it would turn out to be a disfigured cow by Rain Sanning. And she published this in Dead or Alive. Todd walked into Zenith and gratefully ordered a whiskey. It wasn't normal for him to be in a bar on a Wednesday, but then there was little about the workday he just had that could be really be, be described as normal. The alcohol felt necessary to unwind. It started out normal enough. He had arrived at his veterinary clinic to find Zoe answering a call behind the front desk and two dogs and a cat waiting in the lobby. 
His senses took in the familiar musky animal smells and the music meant to soothe anxious patients. Two hours into his shift, however, normal abruptly came to an end. Three men in dark suits entered the building, flashed around their government badges, and demanded that everyone leave the premises so they could speak to Dr. Todd privately. Your country needs you. We need to commandeer you, your expertise, your equine MRI, and any other imaging technology you possess for large animals, they said matter-of-factly. We also need you to sign his non-disclosure agreement, which lists some quite unpleasant consequences if you speak to anyone about what you see today. Disturbed but intrigued, Todd signed their forms and listened to the briefing. We have an alien for you. Todd choked back a laugh. I'm sorry, what? Dark suit one sighed. Apparently he was used to having to repeat things to shock civilians. An alien, he said again, without emotion. There's something wrong with it. We need you to find out what and fix it so we can go back to our regularly scheduled experiments. The man thrust a medical file into his hands. This is what we know about it so far. The file was not very thick. You can't be serious. I'm a vet. I work with animals. Earth animals. Todd was still struggling with the we have an alien part of the story. He had so many questions. Where did it come from? Why was it on Earth? How had it had the misfortune of falling into government hands? This project is very important to your president. Dark suit number two pulled a handgun out and carefully laid it on the exam table. He said nothing, but the message was clear. No more questions. Oh, okay, right. Good, sure, yeah. Todd, Todd nodded vigorously and pasted a falsely cheerful smile on his face. Let's, uh, let's take a look at this alien of yours. Dark suit one said something to his lapel mic, and then all of them, Todd included, made their way to the back of the building where large animals could be brought in for procedures and emergencies through massive bay doors. Todd was still half hoping the alien would turn out to be a disfigured cow or perhaps a deep-sea creature thought to be extinct that had resurfaced. But as he looked at the body, the government suits rolled into his clinic. Those hopes evaporated. This life form was clearly not from Earth. He sat about a physical exam, aware of the constant and threatening supervision. The alien had six tentacles and a tail with a barb on the end, like a scorpion. Two of the appendages seemed more rigid than the others, and the, the bottoms ended in a hard substance, like the hooves of a horse. Todd guessed that the creature was bipedal like a human. He could imagine the alien walking upright with a tail for balance, leaving four tentacle-like arms for gripping and man manipulating objects. The torso blended smoothly into a thick, muscular neck, and although the fe facial features were clearly not human, they had all the same parts. The te teeth were a surprise, though. A double row of sharp points that led Todd to believe this species, species was likely carnivorous. The teeth, the tail, and the dexterity of the tentacles and the sheer size were enough to convince him that the alien was probably dangerous and perfectly capable of causing harm when not sedated. The vet concluded his exam by weighing the alien checking its vital statistics. He had to make a guess at where the heart was located and had even more difficulty knowing where to put the thermometer. He chose not to tell the suits that these numbers wouldn't do him a lot of good as far as diagnosing the problem since he had no idea what the measurements should be. The alien's normal body temperature could be anywhere from volcano hot to glacier cold. There was just no way to know. Finally, Todd decided it was time to get a look at the inside. With difficulty, the suits wrestled the alien body into the MRI to see what they could see. 
Although he couldn't help but be fascinated by the opportunity, Todd was also starting to question whether what they were doing was entirely moral. He was starting to feel a bit invasive. He was quickly losing his appetite for poking and prodding this undoubtedly foreign yet wonderful being. Todd delivered his findings with the highest degree of professionalism he could muster given the situation. In conclusion, he said, I can detect no obvious signs of illness, disease, or injury. What I can tell you is that your alien is pregnant. Before, before the suits could react, a strange ripple flowed through the body of the alien, then another, and another. She opened her eyes, and then her mouth, and in spite of all the teeth, it's, the sound she emitted was ethereally beautiful. The melody began to repeat, and Todd knew that it must be a mantra or sacred chant of sorts. He stood back in awe. I think he amended his conclusion for the confused suits around him. She is pregnant and she is going into labor. The suits went into full-blown panic. They all started talking into their lapel mics at once. Suit 3 started frantically pacing. Suit 2 started grabbing random pieces of metal equipment and thrusting them at Dr. Todd. Will you need this? How about this? What about a nurse or an assistant? What do we do? What do we do? Todd smiled at their fear. Her body was designed for this, he said calmly. In my experience, the best thing to do is leave her alone and let her get on with it. I don't know about anyone else, but I could use a drink. My next is a poem. And it might kind of want to make you think a little bit. It's called We Wore Our Rose-Colored Glasses When We Bought the Old Boat and Restored Its Soul by Catherine Oceano published in Poetry Playground. The boat was old but beautiful. We bought it with our rose-colored glasses and the lies we told ourselves. Later, the restoration would begin over and over. It would start and never finish. It was as if we had been born a month late and a ten quid short. A few beans short of a burrito on an elevator that couldn't quite reach the top, a slice of unbuttered toast on a broken plate. Daft apis mired in silliness, and only the dogs believed it would ever be okay. There was never going to be an end to the patching of the planks that leaked and gaped. The deck that needed to be replaced, a dripping waterfall into the galley, water running in fast, pumped out equally. Made of wood and built decades ago, the sun shone, and we headed through the ocean to the dock that would be home. The anticipation never quite arrived, because the end of the rainbow was always possible. And although we may never reach it, Robert Louis Stevenson said, To travel hopefully is better than to arrive. The journey is indeed where we find joy. It is always possible to see it if you seek it. I want to take this time to ask for a donation of any amount to help me keep this podcast going, if you can. And to also explain how to find my website and what's inside when you arrive at the door. My podcast will remain free to subscribe to on all the major mobile podcast apps at Substack for the first month and on my YouTube channel, Kronabiha. I have set up a donation link on Kronabiha Stories and Poetry at rss.com and a donations page on my website at www.kronabiha.com, all using PayPal for your security. Think of it as me passing my hat around to you at the end of my visit each week. If you like this podcast, Please share it with everyone you know in your social circles as the writers I showcase in this podcast deserve all the exposure they can get. I created this podcast for them because I love to read their work and I believe it should be shared with the world. 
Now I want to explain how to find my website. Since this show is audio only, just type in www.cranna-beatha.com in your browser and search for it. The website domain name is Gaelic and may be a little hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. Then bookmark it if you like it. I also have the RSS feeder enabled, so if you like my blog post, you can be notified whenever I post something new. Search for www.cronnabiha.com in your RSS feeder and set it up. Users finding the website for the first time will reach the welcome page to learn a little more about what's inside. There you'll see the homepage link at the bottom of the page. On the homepage, you can learn a little more about what Cronnabiha means for a little bit of Irish culture and a little about me in general. On the menu bar at the top, there are links to all the pages in the website the blog section where I post podcast newsletters, blog articles, stories and poems, a drop-down podcast menu with links to both podcasts, a donations page, a page to my bookstore to purchase my published books, and a contact page in case someone cares to leave a message. Thank you for your patronage and support. next poem is called The Revelations of Ravens by Tom King. He published this in the Howling Owl. Parched on power lines, the ravens hold court. The raspy council cause of conspiracies echo in the ether. With shrewd ebony eyes, they trace the ley lines crossing this toxic land. The landscape hums with portent frequencies unseen. They will only emerge when the veil lifts. In the lingering gloaming, the ravens riddle in rhapsodies, testing theories of the coming. Shards of darkness will assemble into fractal fragments, and inside these dark kaleidoscopes, truths lie. But for now, the ravens rule roost of revelation. They divine the deep codes in dawn's rosy digits, detect the secrets in the star-stitched night. Mystery yet blooms as they brood. When the moment manifests, the ravens will reveal rhythms and riddles beyond our ken. Until then they wait, watching, whispering wisdom in tongues alien, their discourse drifting on damask breezes. Awakening begins soon. The ravens know. My next one is called Squishing Sacred Cows, a fairy tale by Michael Campy. He opens with a quote, You're an explorer, and you represent our species and the greatest good you can do is to bring back a new idea, because our world is endangered by the absence of good ideas. Our world is in crisis because of the absence of consciousness, by Terence McKenna. In an event that has scientists and doctors baffled, the entirety of the human species overnight became conscious. One observer was quoted as saying, It was like someone turned on a light in billions of people. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It was the moment we had all been waiting for, the moment when all our dreams of creating a better world would finally come true, the moment when all of our efforts would be devoted to saving the planet and providing unlimited free energy and a family pass to the eagerly awaited kingdom of the planet of the apes. Even Rachel Maddow was reduced to tears when her old enemy from Fox News, Sean Hannity, brought her a gift basket and apologized for all the bad things he had said about her and promised to take her pictures down off his bathroom walls. 
we have finally overcome our differences and can now get on to the serious business of becoming the loving, compassionate, and caring people that we have always been deep, deep, deep inside, one reporter stated. Our future is secured and great festivals were held across the globe as former enemies held hands and sang uplifting, uplifting songs, mostly just humming the melody to Kumbaya and We Shall Overcome, because no one can remember the lyrics. The economy was abolished, all debt was forgiven, and a barter system was implemented so that everyone would have everything they needed so they could go out and be concerned for all the living creatures on earth. It was so simple, said Noam Chomsky, the recently elected president of the landmass, formerly known as the United States, as he and his vice president and confidant Alice Abernathy, Chomsky's childhood friend, strolled down Pennsylvania Avenue on their way to the modest three-bedroom home they would occupy after their original White House was converted to a hospital and transition house for homeless veterans. The feeling of having finally won was palpable. Everyone walked around with big smiles on their faces because they realized the horror of the last few years was finally over and they could hope again. To kick things off and get started on cleaning up the mess left by the last 500 years of partying, President Chomsky announced that January 15th would be pick up some trash day. Just go out in front of your house or business and sweep up and in a few hours the whole country would be spotless. To make his first 100 days in office and as impactful as possible, the president announced that February would be the month when government trucks, all of which ran on a sustainable fuel, would be driving around to pick up all the guns and ammunition that the populace had hoarded. We don't need guns anymore because now they're all peaceful, easy people and we have no reason to shoot each other, the president said. The entire country cheered. This is a huge step forward to healing and mending the fences. There was no more left and right. We're all in this together. We have finally become one. The world was truly a magical place. Did any of that really happen, the boy asked as he turned to me. The light from a small fire reflected in the sunken, eye, sunken eyes in his gaunt face. Nah, I said, it was just a story people told each other while the world fell apart around them. Why would they tell a story like that? Couldn't they see what was happening, he asked. They could, but right up to the end, they wouldn't believe it. They kept thinking it would change or get better or that they could somehow fix things, I told him. Did they tell people like me and young people that they could save things? Yeah, mostly people like you because they didn't want you to get scared. Didn't they think they would be worse when we found out they lied? I'm not sure if any of them ever thought it through. Did you tell people how bad it was, he asked. I did. A few people were trying to warn everyone, but they got, well, we got ignored for the most part. They kind of hated us. They called us names and said we were wrong and they were making things worse. What happened when they found out they were wrong? It broke a lot of them. They just went crazy. That's kind of sad, he said. It is kind of sad, but they brought it on themselves. Do you think we might find some food tomorrow? I hope so, but we should try to get some sleep now. I wrapped a thin blanket around his bony shoulders and stared at the flames as he drifted off. And my last story for you this week is the 14th chapter sanctuary. The cabin is surrounded. Bertha attempts to seize control and oust Dorian's family and friends by Robert J. Longpray, published in Life Through a Lens. They retrace their steps to finally arrive back in the main part of the cabin in time for lunch. 
What have you two been up to? demanded Bertha as they entered the main dining area. Leah, you weren't here to do your part in preparing the meal. Leah decided it was time to stop being such a nice person. None of your business, Bertha. I decided to spend some time with my husband. Leah didn't hesitate to lend a hand to make sure the children got their food. While serving out the food, she saw that both Ben and Carl had brought their wives and children into the compound. Two extra adults and seven more children weren't planned for with the original meal preparation. However, Ben's wife, Asim, and Carl's wife, Mia, had offered their services while Leah had been gone with Dorian. When all had finally eaten, Bertha called for a meeting. Why wasn't I informed about the addition of more people? Who authorized this? As we agreed upon before, I'm the head of the household. As such, all decisions need to go through me and the committee. I authorized this, Dorian replied with a polite tone. It was my choice, just as adding you and your two children was my choice. After all, this is my place and property. However, now they are here, me and Asim will become part of the Women's Council. Your role, Bertha, has not changed. Bertha ignored Dory's explanation and focused on her unspoken agenda. You gave up that authority when you created the council, and they chose me as head of household. Before me and Asim can join the council... We will meet and make the decision about whether or not they can remain in the community with their children. Besides, don't they have homes not too far away already in the north? They're Indians, after all. What has their race got to do with being part of the community? demanded Leah, who is now angry. The community needs to focus on providing a safe place for us and our families. We need to bring in a few more of our family members with the world going nuts out there. The other women on the committee and I have already agreed that we need to save more for our own families. There won't be enough room for both our families and your Indian friends. They can stay on reserves where no one from the South wants to go. They'll be safe enough there. Our people aren't safe in the South. Just as Leah was about to burst out with an angry response, Dorian interjected. There'll be no pushing out of Mia, Asim, and their children. This is my home, my land, and fully my decision. This is not up for debate, nor for a group decision. Bertha gave a challenging grin before she laughed and said, Not for long. You'll be joining your Indian buddies at the reserve where you belong, and it will happen sooner than you think. Carrie spotted a small convoy of vehicles, mostly half-ton trucks parked on the side of the road leading to the compound. He could see that most of the vehicles still had passengers, women for the most part. His father hadn't told him about having more people coming to live in the cabin, leaving him to who these people were, and how they found the place. Perhaps Dad asked them to come, he reasoned. Still, he didn't know, and that was the problem. Not wanting to show them how to access the compound, he drove his jeep off the road in order to hide it from view. Getting out of the jeep, he took the twenty-two caliber rifle and put seven birdshot shells in the chamber, and tucked the pistol, which was already loaded, into his jacket pocket. He hoped he didn't have to use either the rifle or the pistol. However, having seen the state of affairs in the South, he wasn't going to be naive and put himself at risk. He carried the rifle carefully, with the safety still on. Whoever was out there didn't know about him. Keeping himself out of the line of sight of the parked vehicles, he circled to access the entrance to the compound, which was hidden behind a clump of bushes. As he just about reached the entrance, he felt a strange buzzing feeling, as though he was passing through some sort of electrical field. A step closer to the hidden entrance had the sensation disappear. Suddenly, he heard a voice yell out. There he is. Bertha was right. The little bastard is leading us right to the front door. Carrie froze. 
These people hadn't been asked to be here by Dad. These people were here to take over. That moment of surprise was followed up by a shot. Expecting to be hit by a bullet, Carrie was surprised with the miss. They had missed him so badly, even the ground behind him or in front of him wasn't hit. What the fuck? Did you see that? The effing bullet disappeared. A flurry of shots rang out with none of the bullets reaching, reaching Carrie. Grab the little bastard. Don't let him get away and warn the others inside. Four of the men, including the one who was giving directions, rushed forward to seize Carrie before he could disappear inside. But, like the bullets, they couldn't reach him before being stopped by some invisible force. I bet Dad has installed a force field around the compound. Seeing his opportunity, Carrie went through the opening to access the compound. The process of decontamination of his body and clothing couldn't be averted. Agonizing minutes passed until he could finally rush into the cabin, dressed in the obligatory jumpsuit. Dad, there are at least seven vehicles outside. They're trying to get in. They found this place because of Bertha. They tried to shoot me. The word spilled out quickly before he took the time to notice that a council was in progress. With those words spoken, Bertha laughed. So that's all I have for you for stories and poems. And once again, I'm hoping that some of this will give you something to think about, maybe even laugh a little bit. So again, I'll talk to you again next week. Slantcha. Karo Mahagan. Thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed the variety of stories and poems again this week. Maybe one of them might touch your heart a little. Disclosure for everyone. In order to read the complete stories and poems, you'll need to sign up for a subscription to Medium. If I see a link by the author on one of the stories to allow everyone to read it, I will let you know on the newsletters. Please return again next week for another episode of Crown of Bayhaw Stories and Poetry. As is Shauna Kay, I want to continue to light you with a story or poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit as we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Long life and fair health to you. Seo Fada Augusbrach Hlanche Chakot. Slango Foil. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.